Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Uh, sold the jamboree a bit too much right there with the sumo suits. Everyone's like, what, we have to listen to a sermon now? I know, I know, I'll go fast. I'm ready to go. Y'all, he's alive. Come on. Some of you here are like, I'm not convinced. That's why you're here. We're about to talk about that. It's going to be awesome. Uh, Welcome, welcome. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're with us, um, as Anna said, we're in the middle of a three-part jamboree extravaganza, all the party words. Um, I, it took me a week to recuperate from last Sunday to be ready for this Sunday. I don't know if you can tell, I have a little boo-boo on my nose. Uh, I woke up Monday morning and I had like little blisters. I'm like, what's going on? And I picked at them, which was a terrible idea. Come to find out, I danced so hard last Sunday and got so sweaty with my glasses. My glasses gave me blisters. And so I was picking at them and then Anna's like, well, what do we do? I'm like, I don't know. She goes, I, let's put steroid cream on it because steroid cream's a great idea. So she put steroid cream on it. My face swelled up, swelled up. Like it looked like a bee sting hit it on Thursday. I'm like, this is going to be a fun Easter. I, I, I was uh, hanging out with Sharon. Some of y'all know Sharon. She's part of our, uh, she leads up our prayer team. She's also a doctor. I was like, Sharon, I put face cream or I put steroid cream. She said, yeah, don't ever do that. It's like, <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> But I'm here. It's a scab. I'm ready to party and eat ice cream, right? Come on. Yeah. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Uh, Thanks for being here. Real quickly, before we jump into today's topic, um, because it's hard to believe we're already in part two of a three-part jamboree, so in two weeks we'll be kicking off a new series. This is a series I've been thinking about for a while now. We are calling it The Politics of Jesus. Ooh, yes. Isn't that an awesome graphic, by the way? I love that. The politics of Jesus. I don't know if you're like me, but there's been a lot of talk about politics in the last couple years. And uh, also questions about the church and what is the intersection of the political system, um, of political opinions, ideologies, and what would Jesus say? And so this has been something that I've been thinking about for a while. I've had lots of conversations with many of you. And um, we're going to spend May and June answering some of those questions. It's going to be intense. Uh, Here's, as I've already started working on it, I realize I'm already implicated in a lot of what's being said. We're all going to be implicated, so that's that's the good part. We're all going to be offended together, which is wonderful, and uh, we're going to sort of ask some of these questions, like what would would the politics of Jesus look like? What What would he advocate for? Who is this new people, this new creation called church? What are they all about? So you want to be here for that. That kicks off in two weeks on May 5th, Bring a friend as well who might be interested. It should be a really good series. Cool. Pray with me, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we, uh, we turn our faces to the tomb. There's all sorts of people in this room. All sorts of people. I don't know where they're coming from and their understanding of you, Jesus their understanding of the accounts of your life. But I pray in this next bit of time that our minds would be quieted, our hearts would be stilled, and we would be able to consider the data surrounding the claims of your first disciples 
that the tomb was empty and that they had encounters with you. That we would look at that honestly, truthfully, and that you would reveal yourself to us. So Lord, I praise you, I thank you for this incredible family. I thank you for this amazing day where no one gets any credit but you alone. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so if you're joining us for the first time, uh, what we did last week for the first Sunday of the Jamboree, uh, we're sort of building a case for Jesus, which is a little interesting. Um, What we did and what we want to do is we wanna assemble all the data around this historical figure, this Jewish carpenter who lived sort of a a very short stint, a three-year itinerant ministry, um, and ended up dying on a cross, and then according to his followers, was raised from the dead. Um, And they had sightings of him. We want to consider all the data around him and ask the question, can we trust it? Is it reliable? Is Jesus who he says he is? Now, obviously, I'm a pastor, and um, I do believe that he is exactly who he says he is, but I didn't come to that conclusion just all willy-nilly. Uh, I've spent many, many years, I'm from the South as well, so we say words like willy-nilly, all right? So, um, but, uh, but I didn't come to just, just you know, haphazardly. I spent a lot of time asking tough questions, still asking tough questions. And so last week what we did was we considered, we, we considered the historical accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell the story, which sort of report who this Jesus was, his life he lived, what happened to him. And today what we want to do is consider the claims that he was raised from the dead, all right? Now, before we jump into that, uh, four quick qualifiers, same as last week, will be important for our purposes today. Number one, I do not feel superior to anyone in this room, and that's important. I think often when we have conversations like this where we're sort of organizing data, um, historical data, trying to make sense of it, the, ba- uh, the, the conversation can be framed as like a battle to be won and lost. I don't view it that way at all. There is one person who is fully in the light and his name is Jesus, I think. And all the rest of us, we are just sort of like grappling around, trying to understand what's going on in this world. We're all trying to make sense of the same questions. Why are we here? Why are we self-aware? Where did that come from? Like, why do we have agency? Why will we die? We're all trying to make sense of the exact same questions. So I don't feel superior. And anytime conversations like this are framed like that, as battles to be won and lost, we've already left God behind. The God of Jesus wants no, he has no business with that. He's a God who says, if you want to sum who I am, call me love. That at my core, I am attempting to love you, to love the world. And so in this space, I also am sort of like you, just presenting data that I've acquired and sort of asking questions, what makes the most sense of that? So I don't feel superior, first. Secondly, human knowledge, how we know things, it's deeper than pure rationality. It's deeper than just gathering data and utilizing reason to to sort through the data. I was actually just listening to a a podcast the other day where a a neuroscientist was saying that the studies are pretty conclusive, that there's there's no way when you are making decisions, we can parse out reason and emotion. The two are like hopelessly interconnected. They go together. To be a human is to be more than just a thinker. It's to be a feeler as well. And that's important because um, to know something, we might know it intellectually, but we also need to know it emotionally. We need to know it experientially. I'll give you an example. 
Uh, like from last week I said, if you were hiring someone for a company, right, what are you gonna do? You're gonna get their resume. You're gonna read through it. You're gonna call their references. You're gonna gather data. You're gonna gather information, intellectual information. And on paper, it may look like they are the best person for the job, but you don't fully know that until when? Until you hire them. You have to know that experientially. So all that to say, there are a bunch of different ways to know. Yeah, uh, last Sunday and today, we're looking at sort of the, the gathering the resume, so to speak. I cannot prove anything. I can only present data and say the case for Jesus seems most convincing. We can reason together to probability, but we all have to commit. We have to hire Jesus, so to speak. That might be a terrible way of putting it, but you know, we have to commit for deeper proof. Third thing, I know if you've been with us for a while, I've used this example so many times, you can quote it back. I'll be done with it soon, don't worry, I'm gonna retire it. But um, there was an example a while back uh, from a book called Proust Was a Neuroscientist. And it looks at these, uh, these wine experts, the, this, these, this study, this experiment, they gathered people who really know wine, wine experts, and they took a middle of the road wine and they decanted it into two different decanters. And in one of the decanters, they said, this is a, like, a really crappy table wine. And the other decanter, they said, this is a really like, amazing grand cru. It's the same wine, right, in both. They just gave it to the wine experts. And they said, judge it, which one is better? And without fail, they all judged the grand cru to be a better wine than what they thought was the table wine. They, they ranked it, they even put descriptive words for it. And the point that they're trying to make is that there's no such thing as objectivity. There's no such thing as objectively experiencing something. Or the way they put it in the, in the book is, before you can taste the wine, you have already judged the wine. Before you can taste something objectively, you've already subjectively passed judgment on it. You've already formed an opinion. And that's important in conversations like this. Because I wanna ask, are we open to receiving new data? It's important that we not adopt a defensive posture because that will lead us to how we rank the wine, so to speak. And again, going back to point one, I don't feel superior. I don't have a defensive posture. I'm open to you giving me new data. I'm like you, I'm just trying to make sense of my life, my one life I get, seemingly. So are we open to actually considering the claims and information? Last thing, we have an anonymous text uh, phone line. So if you have a question that comes up during the sermon and you, like, you can write it down on that sheet that Anna was talking about or you can just text it in. It's anonymous and one of us from uh, our staff, probably me, I'll get back to you um, and we can have a conversation if you want. Sound good? All right. So this week, what we're looking at is sort of the data surrounding the claims that Jesus of Nazareth, after he was crucified, and after he was buried, was in fact raised to life again. And we want to consider and be like, well, was that the case? Did that happen? Now, the first thing we need to point out um, is that when you look at the accounts of Jesus's life, he constantly was predicting his death. He constantly was saying, hey, when he's talking to his 12 disciples, hey, I know I'm healing people right now, but here's what you need to understand. This is where we're going. We're gonna end up in Jerusalem. I'm gonna be betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
I'm going to be crucified, but don't worry, I'm going to be raised to life again. He's constantly predicting this event, and he lived a life that confirmed this prediction. A couple examples. There's a story in Matthew 12 where he, uh, he healed someone, and a lot of the Jewish elite, basically like the pastors of the day, they're like, uh, we don't know what we think about you. Give us a sign. The irony is he had just given them a sign. And he says to them, hey, look, I'm not going to give you a sign. No sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah. And that's referring to the, the Old Testament prophet who was swallowed by a whale. Long story. But swallowed by a whale, was in the belly for three days, and then vomited up. So he's saying, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days uh, in death, and then I'm going to be raised to life again. So he's predicting his death. And another point. Uh, Luke chapter 9, he tells his disciples, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And there's like, I just pick these at random. If you read the stories, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. John 6, when Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So a couple things to note. He's constantly predicting that his story, his life is going to end in death and resurrection. And when people want to make him king, because he's doing some incredible deeds of power, he's healing people. When, they, when they're like, oh my gosh, you must be the Messiah, let's make you king, he doesn't allow it. Because like, you don't understand, my life has to end in death. It has to go there. And at first glance, we read that and we're like, why are the disciples so obtuse? Why are they just not getting it? But here's the thing, we all have experiences like this. I was thinking about this. I don't know if you ever had this. I was a kid one time, and um, my mom, she had to go on an errand to a store. And there was a store right beside, like right in the same shopping center. I couldn't remember the name of it, but it basically was like a footlocker, and only it had a little basketball court inside, which as a kid is the coolest thing in the world when there's a basketball court inside a store. So she had to go to this errand, to this other store. I was like, Mom, can we go to the basketball court store? And like, can I shoot some hoops? And she's like, Russell, we're not going to have time for that. And I'm like, okay, cool, but do you think maybe we'll have time for that? And, and she's like, Russell, you, you're more than welcome to come with me, but we're not going to have time for that. So I'm like, cool. Uh, we get in the car, we go on the errand. It's the worst errand in the world. I don't remember what it is. It's terrible, all right? And then we're leaving, and I'm like, okay, Mom, can, can we go to the store and shoot some hoops? And she's like, Russell, I told you that we're not going to have time for that. And it finally dawned on me right there. I, all this time, she's saying, you're not going to have time for that. And I heard, we're probably going to have time for that, you know? <laughs> like, we'll, we'll find some time for that. And then in that moment, I suddenly like realized, to my horror, oh, she was serious the whole time. <laughs> we don't have time. We do that all the time, don't we? We hear what we want to hear. So the disciples are seeing Jesus heal a blind man, and the blind man's running around like, I can see. And he looks to his disciples, he goes, hey, I know what this looks like, but just don't forget, I'm going to die. <laughs> it's going to end in my death and resurrection. And they're probably like watching this and talking to each other. I'm like, sure, <laughs> we'll see. Right? So he lived, he predicted his death, and he lived a life that confirmed this prediction. The disciples never got it. Summing up the bare bones account of the story. Last Sunday, he enters into Jerusalem, the holy city for Israel. People are hailing him as the long-awaited king until something flips 
and then they decide they want to kill him instead. This past Thursday night, he shared a final supper. He shared the Passover meal, actually, with his disciples. And something happened with Judas where it was the final straw. One of the disciples is named Judas. And for uh, a certain amount of money, he betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Jewish elite. Jesus went willingly. He didn't fight back the entire time. On early Friday morning, there was a very corrupt trial where both Pontius Pilate, who was a representative of Rome in the Judean region, and the Jewish leaders, they presented trumped up charges, totally false, couldn't even, they were contradicting uh, themselves. Jesus just remained quiet, knowing what's about to happen. He's condemned, he's flogged, and he's hung on a cross to die which in that day and age was a very, very humiliating death. It was reserved, it wasn't, they had like tears of execution and this was the worst one. This was reserved for the worst of the worst. They were trying to humiliate you, essentially. Jesus' closest followers all abandoned him. They split, even though he said this was going, it's gonna happen. And he dies on Friday. He's buried in a, in a, in a cave which is ancient tomb. He's buried in a cave and they roll a giant stone in front of the the mouth of the cave. And on Saturday, which is the Sabbath, he's there. And then on Sunday, we're told that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, a couple women, went to the tomb. And they went to the tomb to anoint his dead body with spices. And as they're getting there, they're starting to talk to themselves and they're like, wait, who's gonna roll away the stone? Which I don't know if you've ever had a loved one die. You realize you're just in a fog. You're not even thinking straight. So I imagine that's what they're going through. They have the spices, they have all of those, but then they totally overlook the fact there's a giant stone in front of the tomb where Jesus' dead body lies. And they get there, they come around the bend, and lo and behold, the stone is moved away. And I imagine, this is totally my conjecture, but I imagine panic shoots through them. Because like I said, when Jesus, as he lived, he created a lot of rumors and he created, he had quite the fanfare. He had a lot of enemies. And so I'm sure that it was not uncommon in the ancient world. It's not uncommon in our world. After someone dies, a hero dies to what? To dismember their body, to humiliate them further, to string it up as a sign and example of what happens when you come across the powers of Rome or the powers, of, the powers that be in any sort. So I'm sure they're thinking, oh, no, 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 dear God, please don't let them have stolen him and humiliated him further. The stone's gone. They run into the tomb, and there, and I love this. You, you see this sometimes in the, the four accounts, that the later accounts kind of, um, they add a little more, they, they sort of paper over the, the stark reality. The earliest account is Mark. And I think like Matthew's account says it was an angel, but in Mark's account, it just says when the, when, when the women get into the tomb, there's a man in a white robe sitting where Jesus was supposed to be laying and Jesus wasn't there. That's all. Panic's in their body. They're like, what? he's not here. There's a man in the white robe who we don't recognize. And then he said something. I paraphrased it for our purposes today. This is what I imagine the the man in the white robe said to them. 
Hi there. <laughs> Didn't expect to find me here. I get it. <laughs> You're looking for Jesus. Makes complete sense. This is where they buried him. All right. So I know this is going to seem completely crazy. Keep in mind, he did predict this while he was alive. But he's, uh, how do I say this? He's been raised to life. <laughs> he's alive. He's not here. Take all the time you need. Look around. I know this is quite the shock, <laughs> I can imagine. Talk about a case of the Mondays, huh? <laughs> I added that part. <laughs> okay, then. Once you've taken a moment, go ahead, leave, go tell his disciples that he's alive and he's gone ahead of you into Galilee as he said he would. Remember? <laughs> this is all happening as he said. It has happened. And then in Mark's account, we're told that the women flee the tomb not they leave, they flee the tomb. And the two words to describe them is that they are terrified and filled with ecstasis. Ecstasis is where we get our word ecstasy. In the original sense, it just means to be, to be out of your mind, to have your mind completely thrown out of joint. So they flee the tomb. This is the first resurrection sighting. You ready? They get there. There's a man in white saying, he's not here. They flee full of terror and their mind going, what the heck? It's, it's an R-rated version, what's going through their minds right now. It's like, how, well, uh, their paradigms are totally shot. If you've ever had trauma happen, you've ever been in a car accident, you know the shock that goes through your body. You start shivering, your teeth are chattering. I imagine all that happening, where they're just like, what do we do with this? Like, what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this? The women are terrified and out of their minds. And then over the next 40 days, non-formulaically, not according to any formula, people start having sightings of Jesus. And they both recognize him and don't recognize him. They talk with him and they're like, you seem familiar, but I can't place you. And then the moment of epiphany, they're like, it's Jesus. So a couple examples. In Luke's gospel, there are two people walking on a road to Emmaus. Jesus is just there. And he's talking with them. And they don't recognize. And they're like, where have you been? Haven't you heard what's gone on in Jerusalem? And he's like, tell me. <laughs> and so they start explaining it to him. And then when they get toward, toward the end of the, the journey, he's like, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. Isn't that exactly what's been written in the scriptures? And then he takes them back to their scriptures and shows that hidden in plain sight, were the prophecies that the Messiah would have to be destroyed, would have to be killed, and then raised to life again. And then they get, basically get to their house, and they invite this guy in, which they still don't recognize as Jesus, and they say, come eat with us. He's like, nah, I gotta keep going. He's like, no, come eat with us. So he does. He sits down, and then we're told that he breaks the bread, and he blesses it. And when he breaks the bread, their eyes are open, and they recognize him. And they're like, oh, it's him. And then he disappears. Another example. The 10 disciples, 10 disciples, there are now 10. Uh, Judas Iscariot hung himself. There were 12, then there were 11. And now in this story, there are 10 because Thomas is not with them. 10 disciples, they're in a locked room. They're in a locked room because they're terrified because rumors have gotten out that Jesus's body is not in the tomb. So people are like, what's going on? They're afraid that the Jewish leaders are gonna come after them. 
rightfully so. They have questions. Like, did you steal his body? What are you doing? So they're, and they're trying to like, they're, film, they're, they're forming a game plan. This is headquarters. They're like, all right, what do we do? What's going on? And suddenly in a locked room, Jesus is there. And he's like, hey, what's up, guys? And they're like, what? And then he goes, do you have something to eat? And then they're like, yeah, we got some fish. And so I imagine them huddled over on one side while Jesus is chomping down on some tilapia. And they're just like, are we all seeing this? Like, we're all seeing this, right? This is him. A week later, and then he disappears. A week later, Thomas is now with them. They're still locked in the room together. Thomas, they had told Thomas, Thomas is like, you're out of your ever-loving minds. Rightful, you know, that's, I'm with Thomas on this one. It's like, you're crazy. Jesus is there. And he's, they're like, told you. And Thomas is like, oh my goodness. And then Jesus goes, touch my hands, touch my side. Basically pointing to the marks of the crucifixion, where the nails would have gone and where he was pierced with the spear to confirm. So basically he retains on his body the marks that showed that it was him that died. And he says, stop doubting and believe. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians, and I'll come back to this one, but 1 Corinthians is an earlier letter than the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was probably written about 10 to 15 years after Jesus' resurrection. And toward the end of the letter, as he's uh, exhorting the Corinthian church, he goes, remember, this is all the gospel that I gave to you. And he goes, Christ was, was killed according to the scriptures, Christ was buried, and then on the third day he was raised. And then he says, he appeared to Cephas, Cephas being Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This resurrected Jesus just has these weird, like, non-formulaic sightings. Forty days after Jesus' resurrection, he ascends, which is just another way of saying he stops appearing in his resurrected body. Ten days after that, his disciples, he tells them, go into Jerusalem and wait. I'm going to send you my spirit. Ten days after that, they're praying together, and suddenly the spirit of God just falls on them. And they start, some weird stuff starts going down in that room. But basically there's tongues of fire on their head. They're full with the love of God. They know it's through the name of Jesus. And then after that, this movement just starts spreading like wildfire of people who have similar experiences where like it seems like there's a supernatural force acting upon me, answering to the name of Jesus. And the most convincing of all, I think, is this person named Saul. Saul is like, a, he's a Jew and he's a member. He's the guy who wrote there uh, in 1 Corinthians. His name is changed to Paul, but he's a Jew. He's like a member of the Jewish secret police. So immediately after Jesus' resurrection, as Jews, his disciples are going around and saying, hey, he's the Messiah, he's alive. People are starting to put their trust in Jesus. Saul's like, no, we gotta get rid of this because this is blasphemy. It's destroying the purity of our, of our Jewish faith. He's arresting Christians, who were all Jews at the time, imprisoning them. He's on his way to Damascus. He's going with two companions. Suddenly there's a bright light and he's knocked off his horse. Then a voice goes, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He goes, who are you? He goes, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. He becomes a follower of Jesus and he starts planting churches. And all the first disciples are martyred. They're killed for this belief. 
in Acts chapter 26 as Paul is ending his ministry. He goes, it is my belief in the resurrection that I am on trial. So after Jesus' death, suddenly people start saying they're having encounters with him. And this movement of both Jews and non-Jews who are saying they're having encounters with Jesus starts spreading. That's the data. So the question becomes then, what do we do with this? What do we do with this data? I think there are four options. Number one, there was no resurrection. The gospel accounts of it are later myths. They're later legends. Now, I can't go fully into this one. If you weren't here last Sunday, go listen to the podcast. I go into why the gospels are not later legends. But, but, but rather they're early historical accounts. But here's the main thing that I would say to this. Uh, the gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the accounts of Jesus' life. The gospel of Mark is probably the earliest, written between 60 and 70 AD. But as I just said, the letters of Paul are probably written between 10 to 20 years after the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, here's who Jesus appeared to. And did you notice something? I don't know if you caught this. He lists out the people that Jesus appeared to. Did he list the women? No. Why not? Well, here's why I think, and I'm going to go into this in a bit. In the, in the first century world, women had no voice. They had, their testimony was not credible. So in short, as this is starting to like gain traction, Paul's like, hey, maybe we should hush up this part of the story. Even though it's true, let's just keep it quiet and talk about this to make it seem more believable. Later on, because the first followers of Jesus thought that Jesus was coming immediately. Later on, when they realized, oh, he's not coming yet. We still have a while to wait. Then they're like, we need to write down an authoritative account about his life. Let's just give all the data. Let's give all the information. And the true account was that the women were the first ones to have sightings of him. So the, the first option, that there was no resurrection, the gospels are later myths, just don't make sense of the letters of Paul which are very, very early and have at the absolute start that the resurrection of Jesus is central, is absolutely central to their belief, to our belief here. If Jesus was not raised, Tim Keller says this, and it's true, I don't know where you are on your spectrum of belief, but he goes, the first question and the most important question you need to answer is, was Jesus raised from the dead? If he was not raised from the dead, none of the other questions matter. It doesn't matter if it was seven literal days or not. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. But if he was raised from the dead, then it all matters. We just don't know how yet. And we have the rest of our lives to figure it out. So considering the data that there, the first option means there was no resurrection, that's probably not the best explanation. And because we have extra biblical accounts that say there was an empty tomb and we had sightings. If any one of those is not true, then this doesn't get off the ground. If people start saying, hey, I had sightings of Jesus, like, well, let's go check the tomb. And if the tomb, there's a body still there, it's like, well, you're crazy. But if they say, oh, the tomb's empty, but no one's having sightings, then they're like, well, perhaps the disciples stole his body. So that's the first option. There was no resurrection. That's probably not it. The second option, when we consider the data, his disciples made up a lie, Right? Okay, they're, they're full of grief and they made up a lie. And this is important. 
from the very outset, from the very beginning, they made up a lie that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, here's what's important about this. Every culture has its own worldview of what is possible and what is impossible. And our worldview is kind of like the foundation of what we believe. So in the USA, in our worldview, people walk on two legs. New York City is in the Northeast quarter and we're a democracy, right? That's part of what makes up our worldview. Now, what if I came to you and said, actually, people fly, New York City is in the Southwest, and we're an oligarchy ruled by four big tech companies. You'd be like, well. <laughs> right, we have a worldview. Judaism had a worldview as well. In their worldview, there was one God, one God, and he alone is worthy to be worshiped. He chose Israel. He will vindicate Israel through a Messiah, through a savior. All of the dead are waiting in Sheol, which is like the holding place of the dead. And we're all awaiting the day of judgment. Now here's why this is important, guys. If the disciples are making up a lie from the very outset, and that story I just told you about their claims, I'm gonna tell you now, and this is, a lot of this is from N.T. Wright, who's a scholar, that there are some severe modifications to the Jewish worldview, severe modifications. And that there so, there was no prophet, no literature that anticipated these claims. If this is a lie, it is a spontaneously combusted lie out of nowhere. There was nothing in the Jewish worldview that would sort of suggest that this is possible. Here are the modifications, you ready? Number one, in the first Christians, they're saying the Messiah dies and the Messiah's death is actually a sign of victory. That would be like saying, if I came to you and said, hey, actually in the game of basketball, we've been playing it all wrong. The one who has the least amount of points is the winner. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> we didn't even rehearse that. That was perfect. <laughs> right? It'd be like that. Everyone's expecting the Messiah to come and win the battle and conquer, you know, the, the alien oppressive forces. And the first Christians are saying, actually, it's the Messiah's death that does this. Secondly, the resurrection becomes a two-part event. In the Jewish worldview, there would be a resurrection, but that won't happen until the last day when God returns the day of judgment. The first Christians who are Jews are saying, actually, God has raised one person, Jesus, as a way to solidify the truth of what we're saying, that he's gonna raise us all before the last day. That is a severe departure from their worldview. Thirdly, the resurrection is not peripheral to the Christian worldview, to the Christian belief. The resurrection is central to who we are, like I just said. It all hinges on Jesus coming out of the grave. If it didn't happen, nothing matters. Number four, in Jesus' resurrection, it it's the, means the kingdom has come. God is now reconciled with the earth. And the churches are pockets where the spirit of God is heavier and freer to move. But we're saying, hey, there's still a lot of evil in the world. There's still a lot of wrong. And we're saying, actually, in Jesus is the full embodiment of the kingdom. And in number five, and perhaps most damning, worshiping Jesus, we are, we're, the first Christians are worshiping Jesus as if he's on par with God. 
which for a first century Jewish worldview, you did not do. You don't worship a human as if they are God. That's blasphemy, utter blasphemy. They're fierce monotheists. So here's putting this all together. Stay with me, all right? I'm going to reenact a conversation. Maybe this will be helpful. I'm doing a lot of acting today, I realize. <laughs> if the first Christians who are all Jews, if they are making up a lie to convince other Jews that this guy, Jesus, is the Messiah, this is how it would go. This is how the conversation would go. Well, tell me about your Messiah. Did he win battles? Actually, he was executed. He was executed. Okay, well, was it a noble death? Because we have examples in Jewish history of martyrs dying very nobly and then being exalted, uh, uh, their memory being exalted before the people. Uh, crucifixion, pretty, pretty humiliating, pretty disgusting stuff, actually. Uh, okay, well, did God exalt his memory, even though he's in Sheol, still dead? So, so here's the thing. God raised him from the dead. You mean he exalted him? No, he resurrected him. <laughs> like he resurrected his body. It's a different sort of body. We can't place it fully yet, but it still has the scars of his crucifixion. How do you know this? Our women told us. Women? You trust women? Yeah, we wish some of the guys had been there too, but what are you going to do? They were there. <laughs> but then we saw him later too. So it's kind of like it's been confirmed. But God hasn't returned fully. History isn't over. How has the resurrection occurred? So it's a two-part thing. That's crazy. It's a two-part thing. God raises Jesus first to solidify his plan, and then he's going to raise all the rest of us later. Um, right now, we sort of gather around worshiping Jesus as the Messiah. Wait, 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 wait. You worship Jesus, the Messiah? That's blasphemy. Worship God alone. You're going to like this next part. See, so the reason why Jesus was able to do all this is because he also is God. A human being is God. Yes. That's how the story would go. I'm not saying the disciples are correct. Not here. I'm not saying their account is true. Not here. I'm saying they didn't make up a lie that it's so far outside their Jewish worldview. It has so many intense modifications and it's so early to the event in question that it couldn't have come from their minds. This is not a lie. Everything they're saying they believe has fully happened. And they held firmly to the story. They didn't recount it. They didn't redact it. They held firmly that Jesus was alive and they went to death for it. So that's option two. They're making up a lie. Option three. His followers were having a hallucination. Right? You could say that. If, if, if I started coming to you and said, hey, I saw my grandma. She's dead. But like, she's talking to me. You're like, okay, you're having a hallucination. Well, here's what's interesting about that. The implications of this hallucination are not conducive to their worldview. Like we just said. The implications of this does not make sense with what they presently believe of an, of an executed, resurrected Messiah in the middle of history. Moreover, the implications of this hallucination would not be conducive to their future well-being. They are kicked out of community. They are killed. 
And it's not like they had that much time with him to really fall in love with him, such that they're like distraught. In one account, we're told Peter just goes back to go to start fishing again. He was a fisherman before Jesus called him. He's like, oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm torn up, but I'm just going to get on with life. So the implications are not conducive to this being a hallucination. Moreover, it's important that we recognize, and this might be like splitting hairs, they are not saying that Jesus is a ghost. They are not saying that he's an angel. They are saying he is raised from the dead. And the, the first century Jewish world had a category for angels. In Acts chapter 12, the church is praying for Peter. He's in prison to be released from prison. And he miraculously is. And then he goes to their house and he knocks on the door. And a servant girl goes and answers it. And she hears Peter's voice. And she's so like full of joy. She runs back. She doesn't even open the door. She runs back and says, it's Peter. And this is what they say to him. They say, you're out of your mind. The ones who saw the resurrected Jesus, they say, you're out of your mind. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. They have a category for people's angels. That's not what they're saying. They're saying he was resurrected to life again. He's alive. In the same way that you and I are alive. Almost beyond it a little bit. Moreover, when we look at the sightings, it was three women at the same time. Then it was 10 disciples. Then it was twice because Thomas was with them. Then it was 500 at the same time. And then it was two people on the road to Emmaus, which means that it was always a group hallucination. <laughs> like again, like I said earlier, I'm sure the first disciples were like, are we all seeing this? We're all in agreement. I'm not just the one seeing this. We're all having the same hallucination. I don't know if group hallucinations are that plausible or that possible. We don't believe people rise from the dead. If we all saw Abraham Lincoln suddenly standing here right now, we'd have serious questions about the universe we're living in. And we'd all make sure, like, we're all seeing this, right? Jesus appeared to groups. So, putting all the data together, our options are the Gospels are later myths, which show that probably isn't the case. The disciples were making up a lie. If it was a lie, then it's the most insanely ridiculous lie that just spontaneously combusted in their minds and somehow stuck. And it was, there was no anticipation in any of their literature that this lie could happen. Perhaps, I don't see that being the case. They're all having a hallucination, but here's the thing about that, it was all group hallucinations and this movement is still here. Here we all are, count me among them, that I had an encounter with a supernatural spirit that felt a lot like love and acceptance and answered to the name of Jesus. I have other stories. So is it a hallucination? Is that the most probable? I don't think so. Especially if people are willing to go to death and this hallucination is not making their lives better, but worse getting them kicked out of their communities, getting them kicked out of their families, putting them at odds with the Jewish people. No, I think they actually believe this happened. So what if the most probable option is that somehow, in some crazy way, God raised Jesus from the dead? If the accounts are reliable, if the lie is a terrible lie, 
if group hallucinations that do not have favorable implications are not the most likely, and they're not saying it's his ghost or that he's exalted or an angel, but he's actually resurrected bodily in the middle of history, that he's worthy to be worshiped as on par with God. And this utterly ridiculous tale, central, central to his first followers, results in a community of people who do not gain wealth or honor, but actually lead them to treat the sick in a way that no one ever had by taking care of the sick. Lead them to raise up women and children, elevate them in a way that no one ever had, such that they're an egalitarian community. Created a multiracial family in a time where we had not seen that, where multiple races and ethnicities and nationalities with their own worldviews, their own cultures, met this Jesus and start becoming a new family, start working that out. Led them to take in babies when their culture killed unwanted babies. Led them to take care of those experiencing plague when everyone avoided the plague. Led them to say that the centerpiece of their worldview is to love and forgive those who seek to harm them. Led them to lose possessions, reputations, and their very lives as as they were blessing people who killed them. And just this morning, there was a bombing in Sri Lankan churches that killed over 200 people. And more and more people over the last 2,000 years spreading across the globe started having these epiphanies, these revelations that Jesus is who he says he is. The movement keeps growing such that I consider myself part of it. I hope I would be willing to die for him. I don't know. And as G.K. Chesterton said, ages afterward, people are still talking as if something just happened as if he was just raised from the dead. I know it seems crazy. Perhaps the shock and the ecstasis, the being thrown out of your minds, the teeth chattering, maybe that's the more likely option. But what if the most probable conclusion is that Jesus was raised from the dead? Now Thomas, who was one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, hey, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think often you and I can be like Thomas and quite naturally, (laughs) quite naturally, the data seems conclusive But the results of such data, the the conclusion, will totally put us at odds with the rest of the world. Will totally throw out of joint our entire worldview, our entire paradigm. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then he's the Lord and I'm not. He's somehow in control and I'm not. And I get to spend the rest of my life learning what it means to follow him and to love you and to, to be servants of the earth. 
The data seems conclusive, but often we say, until I experience, until I experience the resurrected Jesus and his spirit speak to me, I don't know if I can believe. That's what we're going to do next week. (laughs) If my arguments have been convincing, then we're going to show up and ask the question of what might it be like? What might it look like to really encounter the living God? the living Messiah, the one who was dead and is now alive. I'm going to invite the band forward. And we're going to pray. But before we do, just to give you a little, uh, what's going to happen next? Usually we sing a song together, but today we're not going to do that. Today what I'm going to ask everyone to do after we finish praying is to remain seated And the band's just going to sing a song. The lyrics will be right behind us. And I'd ask you to follow along with the lyrics. Consider everything I just said. Consider the data. Is it what's most likely in your eyes? That they were later myths? That they're making up a lie? That they're all having crazy hallucinations? Or somehow, even if you don't know what it means, he was raised from the dead. What's most likely? So we're going to sing a song, or they're going to sing. You can hum along if you want. Of course, no one's going to stop you other than your next door neighbor. And and consider this, of what it might look like for God to speak to us. So let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, I mean, I confess, Lord, I'm so grateful that the accounts are so honest. No matter how much I believed in you or loved you, for you to be raised to life again and then to have these encounters with you where, you're, where I can recognize you but also don't recognize you, that would totally change my entire life. I'm terrified. That would terrify me. That would make me angry. That would, that, would, that would do so much to me emotionally. And I realize that's what it does for us. But here on this day, the day you rose, Would you reveal yourself? Would you forgive us for having to be like Thomas a lot of the time? And speak to our hearts in such a way that from the deep, deep place in us, it would rise up that says, this is true. I am who I say I am. I am the light of the world. I am the hope in a world that despairs. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in every heart in this room, we quiet them and we turn our faces to you and we say, speak, Lord. Speak. We love you. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.